35, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Hope you enjoyed a nice Labor Day holiday as we now, it's kind of uh, summer, I understand, on the calendar. We've got a couple more weeks of summer left, but uh, summer sort of winding down. Weather certainly early fall-like. Football kicks off next Sunday afternoon. The Brewers in the thick of a pennant race. Doesn't get much better than that around here, and so glad to have you with us. We have a lot of ground to cover on today's program. Hey, if you want to get a head start on that, uh, this is now, it's been a week now. I'm back on Twitter, so you can follow me at Twitter. It's hashtag JeffWagner620. We give a sort of a head start on things that are going on and some fun stuff that goes on in my life. I'm, I'm getting married in a little bit, and uh, my, my bride-to-be made the mistake of putting me in charge of the music for the, the wedding and the reception. And as I was sharing this with Twitter users this morning, uh, I, I got a song list from the, the group. We did, it's a, just a two-piece that's going to be playing at the uh, wedding and reception. And I got a song list, and turns out they can do 24 Jimmy Buffett songs. 24 Jimmy Buffett songs. Well, let's call that mission accomplished. That's it. <laughs> It's just, it's kind of simple like that. See, put me in charge of those things. That's what happens. We start off today's program like we start off every program. Three big things. The biggest, I, I think the biggest political story perhaps coming out over the last couple days, and there's a lot of stuff that happened over the weekend. We'll be talking about it over the course of the program, including what do you do with North Dakota and uh, with North Dakota, with North Korea, and th- what do you do with North Dakota? What do you do with North Korea and things like that? But it starts off with this issue involving the the Dreamers. The Dreamers are, of course, about eight hundred. It's 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 technically the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is they call it DACA, and it's it's an order that was issued by President Obama a few years back, which said that children of people who have come into this country illegally and have essentially been here most, if not all, of their lives, will be, they're they're illegal aliens. They're they're here illegally, but they were brought here with their parents. And President Obama issued an executive order which essentially said they will be allowed to stay. Um, Now, there's certain requirements that they have to follow. They have to register. They have to, they can't have committed crimes, things like that. But but they they get to stay despite the fact that they have no legal status in this country. And that was done by executive order. There are, you know, depending on the estimates, there are about 800,000 people who qualify as the so-called dreamers, people who are in under this executive order. This has been a hot button for a number of years. There are people who view this essentially as a backdoor way to get amnesty because the argument is, what form of, you know, what type, what don't you understand about illegal? On the other hand, a number of other people look at this and say, look, these, these people came into the United States as children. They, they did not make the decision to come here illegally. They were brought by their parents. Their ties are to the United States. They have no legal status. And the way current immigration law works, because they came into this country illegally, under the current law, there's really nothing they can do to become legal citizens without having to leave the country and then apply to come back in. And that just doesn't make any sense. The argument also is, hey, there's about 800,000 people. These, if you are concerned about issues with regard to illegal immigration, these 800,000 dreamers aren't the people that are causing the problems. You know, go after 
the X number of the 11 million people that are in this country illegally, if you want to start with trying to deport people, the 800,000 dreamers should be absolutely the last people that you try to deport. You should go after the people that have the criminal records. Or, or maybe even if you want to deport people, go after the parents who brought the kids into the country illegally, but don't go after the kids. So the pro- that's those are the arguments on either side of the issue. Well, here's here's where President Trump, who apparently they're going to be announcing a, a policy change today. And the policy change, according to reports, is that President Trump is going to suspend this executive order. Keep in mind, it's not done by the law. He's going to suspend the executive order, but he is going to allow a six-month phase-in period and essentially kick the ball over to Congress and say, our Congress, you know, you've got six months to deal with this issue. Now, here is my take on this, and then we're going to open up the phone lines for Monday morning. First of all, I think President Trump is right in what he is doing. Now, hang on for a minute while I explain. To me, the matters of immigration, it, it's, it's a matter that Congress should be deciding. One of the things that I think was very wrong with the Obama administration is I think President Obama confused the fact that he was a president with the fact that he wasn't a king. I don't think presidents should be issuing these executive orders which essentially disregard the law. And Obama did that on a regular basis. The law does not confer legal status on these dreamers. And I think President Trump is exactly right in under the whole theory of separation of powers, etc. This is if we want to change the immigration laws to allow these dreamers to stay. We, we need to give them legal status, not just an executive order. And what we need to do is we need to have the law change to accommodate that. So, I mean, I think the president is absolutely right when he comes with, with dealing with this particular you know, issue, saying this is a matter that, that Congress needs to deal with. Now, the problem with this is, of course, that one of the reasons that Obama issued the orders in the first place was because Congress couldn't get its act together on immigration. So by Trump saying, hey, I'm going to do this as a six-month phase-in, he's essentially forcing a dysfunctional Congress to act. I think President Trump is absolutely right in kicking this over to Congress and saying, look, let us decide what the law is going to be. I'm not going to be a king we, you know, you Congress figure out what the law should be. Send me a bill, and then I will sign it or I will not sign it. I think Trump is absolutely right in doing that. Here's the tough issue, though: What does Congress do? This matter goes over to a dysfunctional Congress that can't agree on anything. Immigration continues to be a hot point. So when Congress gets this. Should they give legal status to the dreamers? Should we essentially put in writing, make it a part of American law, that the people who have entered this country illegally as children be allowed to stay? Is that amnesty? And the answer is, yeah, it it probably is a a form of, of amnesty. But does it make sense given what's going on in the world and given the fact that most of these people are not causing trouble, they're, people, they're not causing trouble, and they've been here for most of their lives. Should the dreamers be allowed to stay? 
414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When we come back, I'm going to share what I think should happen, what Congress, I think, should do. But I want to hear from you. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the Dreamers be allowed to stay? President Trump is kicking that into Congress. We'll have to see what Congress does. But what do you think should happen? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on, and I'll share my thoughts, too. It's 844. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 847. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. See, in many respects, President Trump is in a trick box when it comes to this, this, this Dreamer Act. It's an executive order that Obama came up with in 2012. Um, there are a number of attorney generals who are in the process of suing the federal government, alleging that this program is illegal. Obama didn't have the authority to do this. And in my opinion, they're clearly right. I mean, the Trump administration isn't going to defend an unconstitutional order from Barack Obama. So he is right, I think, to say, look, we're not going to pursue this dreamer thing, but I I, I want Congress to find a solution to it. So they kick it over to Congress, and the question becomes, what does Congress do with this? Um, I haven't – my answer is probably not going to make too many people happy. Um, I I think – I – Candidly, I don't think it's necessarily amnesty to say to the people covered currently in the Dreamers Act, as long as you comply, we're not going to make you citizens, but as long as you comply with the requirements of being a Dreamer, we are going to let you stay. At the same time, I think you have to say, okay, from now on, though, all right, we're not going to, we are not going to allow other people who come into the country illegally to be subject to this. I would carve out a special exception in law for the people who have been here and have currently been covered as dreamers, but then say no more. That would be my solution. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Patrick in Waukesha. Patrick, you're first. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Uh, I pretty much agree with you. I guess I was saying something along the lines of where that, you know, the the current dreamers uh, be allowed citizenship, but then have like a clause in the law that family members can't use these children as a way to fast track their own application to become citizens and things like right. that. And, and see, and I wouldn't argue, I, I would. I make a distinction. Right now, the Dreamers aren't allowed citizenship. They're essentially just allowed legal residency, you know, as long as they comply with the requirements of the Act. And I, I, see, I see citizenship as something different. But So that's where I would I maybe distinguish from you, what you're talking about. Sure, and, you know, maybe that makes a little bit more sense is where that they're, you know, allowed legal residency rather than citizenship, and I right. think that probably would be a better route to go than uh, than my idea. <laughs> right. Well, no, but I, but I guess but the question is, w- moving forward, I mean, I, I would say, though, you know, from, you know, whatever day Congress passes, whatever it passes, you know, I, I do think you need to end the program for new people. So, you know, people who are in this country now, let them apply. But at some point in time, you, you do have to get control of the borders. Right, exactly. And and have that, you know, make that clear cut distinction, you know, whatever it is, is you know, it right. the legal system, you know, six months from now or whatever, you know, then it's going to be a cutoff point. So, yeah, I agree completely. There. Uh, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Andrew in Greenfield sends us a text. I don't mind letting these people stay as long as they plug the leak, granting legal status to children brought in by their parents without stopping the influence of legal, illegal immigration is just kicking the can down the road. We give 800,000 people legal status now. What's going to happen 20 years from now when we have another 800,000 illegal kids brought in by their parents. Everyone knows that before you can fix a leaky pipe, you have to shut off the water. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do th- see, I guess I just see these as distinct. Plus, 
as I look at the immigration mess that we are in in this country now, um, I, I think the, the dreamers are the least of the problems. And I'm all about problem solving and trying to prioritize things. And first of all, I mean, I would be concentrating my resources not on people who came here as kids who are leading productive lives. Now, I mean, because that's one of the requirements. You essentially have to be a dreamer. You know, if you commit crimes and stuff, boom, you know, you're, you're gone. You leave the country, try to come back, you're, you're gone. There are all sorts of, of rules. So I don't have a problem with the framework. I agree with the Trump administration that I don't think Obama, President Obama, I clear he did not have the authority to issue this type of order. This, in my opinion, is something that has to be done legislatively. So I think President Trump is right to kick it over to Congress. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Charlotte in northern Illinois. Charlotte, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, you have some real problems occurring with this illegal Homeland Security memo issued by Barack Obama. Um, yep. I think it's clearly unconstitutional and illegal. No question about it. It's nice to use the word dreamers and children, but basically many of these people are now in their 20s and 30s, and they're having children, and what happens if you have a child on American soil? Well, that's birthrights. Matter of fact, we're going to talk about birthright citizenship a little bit later on in the program. But yes, if you have a you know, child born on American soil, becomes a citizen, period, right, regardless of the status of mom and dad, yes. So if you uh, send the parents home... The children, what what I'm saying is they are citizens, and they are entitled to all kinds of rights. So you have a, a, a division here. Anyway, uh, it, it all started with something that is lawless, yep. and you're setting a precedent if you don't turn it around. Uh, I, I don't know where, I don't know how I would rule if I were a congressperson, but yeah. be careful of the language like dreamers and children. They're not four-year-olds. Right, well, right, right, they're, right. Thanks. Right. In, in general, they're right. They're, they're, they're kids. They're teenagers. But I guess my point is, Charlotte, they are, and, and I understand, and I am sensitive to the argument about what part of illegal don't you get. I, I'm sympathetic to that. At the same time, I'm a, I, I'd like to think of myself as being practical. And the truth is, as somebody who worked for a long time in the federal system, I can tell you, we don't have the resources. We don't have the immigration judges. We don't have the prosecutors. We don't have the resources to deport 10 or 11 million people who are in this country. We have to prioritize things. And to me, if you're trying to prioritize getting a handle on the mess that the immigration system has become over the last several decades, what you want to do is you want to start off by concentrating on the people that are creating the problems. And and as a general rule, this 800,000 people, kids who, who came in as kids, who didn't have a choice, but essentially have more ties to the United States than any country they, they left from and who aren't causing problems, to me, that would be the lowest priority there. You know, if we were saying these are the only people that are still in this country now, okay, then you could have a theoretical conversation. But as long as they're not causing problems, um, I, I guess – I, th- this would be the group that I would kind of carve out this, because, look, the, the reality is we're going to have to spend a lot of time dealing with, I think, a lot greater immigration issues. But I do think it needs to be a legislative um, situation as well. 414-799-1620. Let's see, Dick and Grafton text. You and I are on the same page regarding the Dreamers. The entire immigration issue has been disregarded by Congress for too many years. Yeah, this 
This has got to be a congressional solution. We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is big story number one, crisis following the Trump administration concerning immigration. It's 855. It's 857, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I'm getting a number of texts from people saying, well, why do we even need the the DREAMers Act? Why why can't the DREAMers get themselves documented? Well, the problem with that is if you come into this country illegally, you've got to leave the country and then figure out a way to come back in legally. If you're in here illegally, absent something like this DACA Act, the the Deferred Action for Childhood um, Kids, you're not going to be able to stay in the country without without leaving in the first place. Brandon in Wauwatosa. Brandon, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Regarding your last comment, does that apply to marriage, too? Would they, if they found a person to marry, would they have to leave as well? Uh, No. No. Okay. Yeah. I don't, at okay. least off the top of my, you know, I, I don't think so off the top of my head. No. I see. Okay. Uh, yeah, my point was uh, DACA has already taken up so much time and resources that we just need to put the final nail in uh, this and close the book, and uh, particularly for the left to uh, scream equality all the time. This is one of those things that uh, rather hypocritical, where they want to create a whole separate class that is exempt from the rules. Right. And, uh, so what would you, would, would you would you just eliminate it and say, okay, we're going to go out and we, we now know who these 8,000 people are, 800,000 people, we're going to just deport them? I think yeah, give them six to twelve months to work out their affairs, and hopefully they would uh, do it themselves. Otherwise, yeah, they are breaking the rules, and then they have to face the consequences. Okay, thanks. Well, I, mean, I you know, I, I see here. Here's the, I don't know. I, I, I just. Again, I, I come back to I understand the argument you're making, Brandon. I, I, I do. You know, they're they're in here they're in their country illegally. You know, they should have to leave. But this this is a special class of people who are here partly as a result, at least in my opinion, of how screwed up the immigration system has been. And like I say, I'm all about practical solutions, and I'm all about priorities. And to me, this should not be the priority. If I was running Congress and I had the votes, I would essentially institutionalize the DREAMer program, but I would cut it off with people currently in the system. When we come back, a lot of stuff, including Milwaukee police controversy yet again. Stick around. It's 9 o'clock. Nine oh nine, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Um, reports are circulating in the Twitterverse that I am now a part of. You can follow me at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Um, that the David Clark, who resigned last week at the sheriff, um, that he is not going to be joining the Trump administration per se. And I, I think for anybody. The reality is, if the position needed Senate confirmation, it just wasn't going to happen. But the reports that are circulating in the Twitterverse suggest that uh, David Clark is, is not going to be joining the Trump administration per se, but he is going to be going to 
for example, the, the, the tr- it's going to the Trump Political Action Committee. That's what people are saying. So it would be another position where you don't need Senate confirmation, you're outside of government, but nevertheless you would be a spokesperson, one of the people on the outside sort of assisting the Trump political machine, which would not be a surprise. Um, when, when I first heard that David Clark was up for that particular Homeland Security job that he was up for, I always thought it was a bad mix just because um, – management that that was a the, the thing that he was being talked about for was a bureaucratic job and i just it didn't seem like a good fit to me i think uh former sheriff clark whatever his future is it's going to be in making tv appearances and it's going to be advocating for issues not necessarily again acting as the liaison between the government and various you know states on those types of issues so the, the current report that's out there by a number of people in the twitterverse is that uh, david clark is going to be going to the trump political action committee sources are saying that that would not be necessarily a surprise okay we're right in the middle of our three big things story number two milwaukee police in trouble or being questioned for fatally shooting a man. Now, here's the way the reports um, break down. The shooting happened about 10 p.m. Sunday. So this is, even though it's the start of the work week, yesterday was a holiday. So this happened about 10 um, p.m. Sunday, uh, about seven miles north of downtown. The reports are that there was a, a a fight going on in, in the street um, at it, it 39th and, and Congress. There was a fight going on in the street. 37-year-old man, according to his family members, comes outside with a gun. Now, officers are, are on the scene or nearby. Guy has a gun, and at least according to family members, the man who is apparently um, legally blind fires one or more shots into the air. Um, family members said he did so to break up a large fight that prompted the police report. Um, relatives say that the man, the 37-year-old man, who fired the gun into the air, um, again, didn't know that police were on the scene because he was legally blind um, on top of this the man who was shot who fired shots into the air who was legally blind was a convicted felon so he wasn't allowed to legally possess a firearm in the first place but he, he did it because theoretically at least according to the family members he did it because well, he, he lived in a high-crime neighborhood, and he wanted to protect himself. Uh, the Milwaukee police assistant chief um, said police responded to multiple calls about a large street fight in the area around 10 p.m. Sunday night. Subjects with bats. As officers responded, there were shots fired in addition to the scuffle that was taking place. When officers arrived on the scene, they confronted an individual that had a gun, Two officers discharged their firearms, striking the subject. Friends and relatives, again, said the man did fire shots in the area. 
but they said he was shooting into the air to break up the fight, and because he was blind, he could not see that the police were already there. He literally stepped out just to say, get away from the house. You had 40 to 50 people chaotically fighting on your lawn, and the guy's cousin says, you know, what would you do? Police, for their part, are saying right now it's too early to confirm that he was shooting in the air. Police say, you know, we... Oh, we it's a chaotic scene. We can tell you that we did recover the weapon. There are casings on the scene to indicate the weapon was in his possession. Okay, so you, you can imagine this scenario. You've got a major brawl, which is broken out at 10 o'clock Sunday night in this neighborhood. People with bats, whatever. The police respond. So you got 40 to 50 people that are involved in this ongoing fight. The cops come. And somebody on the scene goes out and starts firing their gun, and the police shoot at him. Right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, obviously, this is it's, it's a tragic situation. Anytime anybody loses their life, it is a tragic situation. There's no question about it. And there's going to be a thorough investigation to determine, you know, what, you know, what happened here. Um, but I, I will tell you, when, when I start hearing these reports, while I find it to be a tragic situation, I, it's tough for me at the outset to be too critical of the police. This is unfortunate if it happened like people allege. But you have a, a guy, 37-year-old man, legally blind, not legally allowed to own a firearm, who goes out outside of his house and by the admission of his family starts shooting the firearm their story is he's shooting it up in the air okay so i'm trying to picture imagine again i I don't know exactly what the police interaction was with the guy but imagine that you're the cops you know you come onto the scene you've gotten this call there's 40 to 50 people with baseball bats and whatever involved in a major brawl and there's somebody in the middle of it with a gun who is firing the gun now, again, the investigation's got to proceed, and you want to have that happen. But it sounds to me, at least on the surface, like w- what are these police officers supposed to do? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, we discuss next. I- again, I-, I want to wait for all the results, and it might be that this turns out to be a very, very bad shooting. My initial reaction is this is an unfortunate situation if the facts are like the family alleges. But... I mean, the, the cops come onto the scene. You've got a guy with a gun who is, by their own admission, firing the gun in this chaotic scene. Um, I'm giving the cops the benefit of the doubt here. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's big story number two. It's 917. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers continue their series at Great American Ballpark this evening. It's game two for the crew against the Reds, and our coverage from Cincinnati gets underway at 535. Yeah, our, um, let's see, our uh, text line here is exploding. Why does a blind man have a gun in the first place? Yeah, and this is a blind guy who, who is also a felon. Um, Mitch writes, this just isn't normal that there would be 50 people brawling, let alone adding a guy 
firing a gun in the air. It sounds insane. How could the cops sort all this out? 414-799-1620. John in Milwaukee. John, good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Jeff, i, I got to tell you that, you know, this is just all kinds of wrong. Um, you know, gunshots are always considered to be deadly force no matter what. So in this case, the officers acted uh, justly. Uh, they did exactly what they needed to do to uh, stop, you know, that encounter uh, with that gentleman. Uh, being a felon, obviously, he has no, uh, there's no reason why that, that guy should have had a gun. I get it. He's in a bad neighborhood, um, lots of crime in his neighborhood. But uh, it's just he, he shouldn't have his hands on a gun. I mean, if he's blind, what's he gonna you know what's he gonna do other than hurt someone? Well, and again, it'll all emerge in in the report. But I'm I'm trying to picture a situation. The police. Okay, it's a Saturday night. You've got this brawl by every all stretches of the imagination. You got people with baseball bats. You've got a couple cops on the scene. They're trying to get stuff under control, and all of a sudden, you have a guy who, who's on a porch or whatever firing a, a gun. Well, all right, what are the police officers supposed to do in a situation like this? And by the family members say, well, he didn't know the police were on the scene, so that's why he was shooting. Well, all right, maybe that's why you shouldn't have gone out. That's why we tell people you you don't just fire guns into the air you know you you don't do that type of stuff because bad things can happen without a doubt and you know how people can get behind this and justify you know his actions uh is beyond me and i I understand you know it was a chaotic scene there's a lot of things going on i can understand the want uh, to, to protect yourself and your home and everything else i wasn't there i don't know what was going on but right. the fact remains He's a felon, has no business having a gun, in addition to the fact that he's blind. I mean, this is uh, just ridiculous. Right, right, thanks. And, and, and you're, you're fire, and, it, and it's not even, I'm, I'm, I'm past the felon stuff. Yes, he shouldn't have had the gun in the first place. I mean, that doesn't justify him, him being shot. But under the circumstances, I mean, I'm just, this is why, whether, you know, you're, whether, you know, for everybody that has a concealed carry permit, I know we're talking about something different here. I mean, you have to exercise a firearm, use a firearm responsibly. You don't shoot guns into the air. And in this type of situation, again, we, you know, maybe it's going to turn out that there's something that we don't know that comes out of this. But again, I'm trying to imagine cops on the scene. You're trying to get this under control. You've got people wailing at each other with baseball bats. And all of a sudden, you, you look over on a porch and there's a guy that's firing a gun. Well, all right. Can you, you know, can you be surprised that some officers might have returned fire, or you know, you got a guy who's on the porch shooting the gun? You could easily understand how you know they might have perceived here. There's somebody that's now firing, and you know, again, it's ten o'clock at night. Maybe they're not able to necessarily make the distinction that he's shooting in the air as opposed to shooting into the crowd. All they know is he's got a gun and he's shooting. And again, it's you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and maybe there's going to be some fact that emerges that shows that these cops were completely wrong. But I mean, just listening to these facts, I'm like, my gosh, they were in an untenable situation. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Jeff. Uh, these cops come on a melee, and uh, there's guys with baseball bats hitting each other, and there's a guy with a gun. Uh, they don't know he's a convicted felon that's blind or whatever, but he's shooting the gun. Right, he's on a porch and, firing a gun, and they can't tell whether right. it's up in the air or into the crowd. They know there's this guy that's shooting. <laughs> Right. Right. So uh, if you're going to take care of something, you're going to take care of the, the guy with the gun before the guy with the bat. Uh, 
I, yeah. you know, I, that's my thought is, uh, if I was a cop, I don't know what I'd do otherwise, but I would think the guy with the gun was more a threat than the guys with the bats. Well, right. And they don't, I mean, thanks to call, at least based on what's being reported now. I mean, you've got the, like you say, you've got the, we'll use the word melee. I like the word melee. It sounds to me like this might have been more than a melee. If you've got this major brawl that is broken out, people with baseball bats, like I say, then there's a guy who now comes onto the scene and starts shooting. Well, I mean, the police really don't have the opportunity, I think, to determine, is the guy shooting into the crowd? Is the guy shooting above people's heads? Is he shooting in the air? All they know is that there's somebody, and now there's somebody out there that is firing. You know, it's just, I mean, seriously, it's an unfortunate situation. And like I say, maybe the investigation will come up with something more than we're seeing. But in this particular case, you know, really, I mean, imagine what are the police supposed to do? Sit there and let the guy, for example, fire six or seven shots into the crowd instead. And then people say, well, wait a second. You know, you mean you were there on the scene. You knew that the guy had a gun. You knew that he was firing it. And there's five or six people dead. Um, James writes, wait, wait, wait. A convicted felon armed and firing a gun in the air and blind. And the girl on TV thinks it's okay. I don't know what he's talking about. What planet are these people from? It's, this is not the wild, wild west. All right, here we have another text. This is tragic, but my thoughts are these. The guy is only legally blind, not totally blind, so he would clearly be able to see police lights. I, I don't know uh, about that because, um, again, the family members say he didn't realize he wasn't able to tell that police were on the scene. So his response is to get his gun and, and go out and start start shooting again an unfortunate set of circumstances it it, it is and you don't like to see anybody lose their lives um but the police officers i'm just saying based on the reports thus far i understand why seeing somebody come into this chaotic scene and start shooting why they would return fire or at least shoot in response to what they perceive is a threat it's tragic but it is one of the reasons why, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't wade into the middle of something like this with a gun and start shooting. 926 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Big thing number three is coming up, and it's related to the police as well. Stick around. <laughs> Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Believe it or not, there's an uptick in parents accompanying their sons and daughters on job interviews. Huh. Why is this happening? And is it doing more harm than good in the idea eyes of potential employers? Scafidi and Billstead have the details and want to hear from you. 1235 today here on WTMJ. It has been a long time since I uh, was involved in the hiring process, but I was back in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I'm trying to imagine if if I'm doing job interviews and you've got like a young lawyer that's coming in, if mom and dad show up with them, Huh. <laughs> I just I'm just saying that 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 might not be something that well it would be definitely something that would come up at the discussion. Well, what did you think of Brian? Well, his mom and dad showed up and that would probably end that. All right, this is I I've mentioned this before. When when you have natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey, it brings out the best in most people and I mean that sincerely. And then of course it brings out the worst in others. They they're having in Houston, a huge problem with looters. You know, people who have decided, hey, the folks have evacuated their homes. Let's go in and let's rob them. There's a homeowners association um, in Harris County, which is where a lot of the flooding was. Um, the homeowners who've already dealt with flooding says they are now dealing with looters. They are starting to post signs 
warning, looters will be shot dead. Another saying, you loot, we will shoot. One of these signs was placed proudly in front of this woman's house. She's a stage three cancer survivor. She says, I've had enough. She says she came back from the flood. She saw strangers poking around Sunday, grabbing possessions um, <laughs> you know, um, out of people's houses. You know, One says, this is my home. This is not trash. Um, apparently, uh, one of the neighbors had one of these signs as well. And, and you know what? You know, wh- whatever the law actually might be on this in Texas, my advice would be don't loot because I can't imagine a jury in Texas anywhere that would convict some homeowner for shooting somebody who was looting their property, regardless of what the law would be. So don't loot, they shoot. It's 935. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The NFL's regular season is just now days away as the Packers are prepping for their opener with the Seahawks. That's going to be a great game. Voice of the Packers, Wayne Larrabee, takes you inside the locker room with a preview of the matchup when he joins John McCure in Wisconsin's Afternoon News at 320 today. People have been asking, um, will Monday morning quarterbacks be a regular part of the show? Um, and the answer is, yeah, Monday morning quarterbacks coming back. We'll be talking to Wayne um, after every Sunday game on Monday morning at 830. So you can tune in and check that out. Speaking of the NFL, this is big story number three that I want to discuss with you. Everybody is perhaps familiar with the fact that you have a group of NFL players, starting with Colin Kaepernick last year, who have decided that they want to express their displeasure with the state of affairs of this country. Now, these are people who are making millions of dollars for playing a game by not standing during the national anthem. And currently, Colin Kaepernick remains out of football, number one, because he's overpriced himself, but number two, because he is a, a hot potato from a marketing perspective by virtue of you know what he chose to do last year. So some people see Colin Kaepernick as a victim, I see him as just dealing with consequences of of his actions. But in any event, there are other football players who have decided they want to follow the Colin Kaepernick lead, including a handful of players on the woeful Cleveland Browns team who during you know their their exhibition season would refuse to stand for the national anthem, all right? Making their protest. Well, fine, the, the Cleveland Browns and the NFL apparently let them make their their protest. But some people are responding to that, and they're not just voting with their pocketbooks. Um, The home opener for the Browns is scheduled for this weekend, um, September 10th. And the Cleveland Browns organization had planned on a, a big ceremony. Where and you, you've probably seen these on TV before, where you have like fire and police officials and emergency responders who unroll a huge American flag on the field. They do that in Green Bay. They, they do it in a lot of different places. Well, all right, the the people that were going to hold the flag, namely the the police officers, and some of the emergency responders, at least through their union, they have decided to stage a counter protest. And they've said, you know, we're our guys aren't going to be participating. Cleveland's police union, this is the way the Cleveland Plain Dealer reports it, will not be holding the American flag for a pregame ceremony for the Browns' first game. And this is the union saying this. Union members had planned on participating. Um, however, 
uh, the players not standing for the national anthem, this is what the union says, is offensive because of the sacrifices that people make that allows these guys to enjoy the success they have. This is what the union head is saying. While they're benefiting from protection of the flag, they are kneeling in disrespect of it, the union person says. The Browns management, and again, this is the union boss's position, the Browns management and ownership have condoned this disrespectful activities of their employees. The union president says it's just ignorant for someone to do it. It defies logic. The fact that management is aware of what they planned on doing, that's as offensive as they get. Um, the Browns organization says that, okay, we we respect the, the country's flag, da-da-da-da-da-da. We feel it's important for our team to join in this great tradition and special moment of recognition. At the same time, we also respect the great liberties afforded by our country, including the freedom of personal expression. So in other words, the Browns organization is saying we have no intention of doing anything to require our players to stand. So, again, the union president saying, okay, we're, we're just not going to part- – our membership is not going to participate in this particular activity. Now, into this situation wades the chief of police in Cleveland – who comes out with a statement um, saying, Hello, Cleveland. Recent statements made by the president of the union would lead one to believe that members of the Cleveland Division of Police, the department, are against participating in events with the Cleveland with the Cleveland Brown athletes. This is simply not the viewpoint of all of our officers. The Cleveland Browns organization has been a longtime partner, yada, 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 and we know we can count on this partnership to continue. As law enforcement officers, we took an oath to protect and serve. We protect the rights of all citizens to express their views as protected by the First Amendment, no matter the issue. Um, we, our American flag is an important symbol of our great country, and our officers will continue to salute it. Most importantly, we as Cleveland police officers strive to open the lines of communications with all our citizens. Um, we are Cleveland. We stay strong together. Um, and he goes on to say that this is the union's idea. It is not the police department's idea. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There is some blowback out there from the police union saying, we choose not to participate in this event. So, who's right? The police chief, um, who essentially says, well, well, look, um, this is a First Amendment sort of thing. This is not representative of the department. I don't agree with the decision of the union. And the Browns, who say, well, our, our people have personal liberties and, you know, they get to do it if they want. Or the union, the police union in this case, who's saying, you know what? No, we just don't want to be a part of this event because, again, you've got these people who are acting in a disrespectful fashion. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As I often say, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that you it's the right thing to do. Um, I, if I were the NFL, I would ban this, t- this type of behavior on the sidelines. I would say you stand. The NFL you know, regulates all sorts of stuff. I would say you stand. If you decide you want to do a protest, go with God. Do it on your own time, not when the only reason you're on national TV is because it is an NFL football game. 
in this particular case, I completely and totally support the police union, and I'm glad that they are taking a stand saying, you know, look, if the, if the Browns organization is going to countenance this type of behavior, we don't want to be a part of this. This is the consequence that happens when, okay, the Browns decide to do what they've decided to do with regard to allowing the players to get away with this. Do you fault the union for saying, you know, our members don't want to participate? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's big story number three, and it's 942. <laughs> It's 946, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Let's see. Uh, how does investment employee engagement set a company apart from its competition? Expert Noah Rickham shares his thoughts with the team at Newwalkie, and it's all in the intersection of People in Place podcast. You can check it out on WTMJ Mobile. When you're there, uh, sign up to get notifications. We podcast this program every day, and know people listen to it as well. All right, big controversy in Cleveland. number of Cleveland Browns decided that they were going to pull a cop and Colin Kaepernick, not stand for the national anthem. All right, the police union that was supposed to show have its members turn out to hold the flag on September 10th, opening day, you know, one of those big flag things, they've said, hey, if the Browns organization doesn't have a problem with what these guys are doing, we're we're, we're, we're going to stage our own counter-protest. We're not going to have our members unfurl the flag. The Com- Cleveland police chief is not happy with this. The Browns are not happy with this. I say, well, this is just the blowback you get when you allow self-entitled athletes, essentially when you allow the inmates to run the asylum. Let's talk to Randy in Kenosha. Randy, you're first. Good morning. Uh, Yes. uh, The reason I called is uh, what I'd like to say is, okay, the Cleveland Browns have have signed several players. Now, many of them have been convicted of serious crimes and some of them not so serious. But the, the uh, police never uh, protested that or, or made any statements in regards to the Cleveland Browns signing these uh, players with criminal records. And now you've got players that are doing something that's guaranteed by our Constitution, protesting. Yeah. Uh, in this country, we, we are allowed to protest. Well, you're, you're allowed to protest. Well, let me stop you, though, Randy. You're, you're allowed to protest. But there are, are consequences for your protest. Don't the officers, the rank-and-file members, have the right to stage their own protest? Not when they don't protest. If they don't protest hmm. when laws are, when players are allowed to play who have broken laws, after all, they're law enforcement. If they don't protest that, then I find that it's, it's, it's just wrong to protest something that is legal. Well, I think, well it's, but you, you keep saying it, it's legal. Nobody's arguing whether or not they it, it whether it's against the law. I mean, it's it's the same sort of situation. Okay, so the Browns. I don't I don't know who you're referring to. The Browns. Okay, hire some guy who's got a conviction for whatever. Um, right. That, that's that is an issue as well. And I guess maybe you should say people could protest and do that. But I don't think that means that the union members lose their rights to, uh, again, stage their own counter-protest, I think it is legal for them to do this as well. And if the Browns and the NFL are going to allow this type of, again, dis- in my opinion, disrespectful behavior, and nobody says they don't have a right, the players individually don't have a right to protest, they don't necessarily have a right to do it while they are on the job. 
and their employers, be it the Browns or the NFL, could put a stop to this. I mean, again, it's your First Amendment rights largely end when you enter the workplace. That's just kind of the way the, the rules work. If they're doing it on their own time, it would be a different story. But I think that's why this is directed at the Browns. It's because the Cleveland Browns decided, all right, we're 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 not going to do anything about this. Let's talk to Bill in Fond du Lac. Bill, you're on 620 WTMJ. Uh, you just took the words out of my mouth. These guys, these players, think that they are above everything, but they're employees. They yep. go to work at, when they hit that field. Uh, I can't run the American flag up the flagpole in front of WTMJ and put it on upside down because I protest something. I'm going to get fired. Right, yeah, if you're, an, empl- right, if you're an employee, right, if you do something like that, you go out to your own house, you do that, Bill, you've, you know, th- that's fine. You've got a right to do that. But, yeah, when, when you come into the workplace, and like you're saying, the only reason these guys are getting any sort of attention at all is because they're in Cleveland Brown uniforms, you know, on the field prior to an NFL game, but they're still on the job. And the NFL and the Browns let them do this on the job, and that's what I think the that's why the cops are upset. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. No, thank. It's their job, so let's go to work. Right. Exactly. And see, in the NFL, would be completely until if it weren't for some politically correct weenies, you know, running the NFL and some of these teams. The NFL. I mean, my God, the NFL restricts what kind of shoes you can wear and what kind of socks you can wear and what sort of thing, what you can do, how you can celebrate after a touchdown. You mean to tell me that the NFL doesn't? The only reason that the NFL doesn't have rules saying you stand during the national anthem is because of this political correct weeniness where they're afraid that, oh, this might upset certain people. Well, the problem the NFL is having, last year TV ratings were down. It was down as a result of a number of things, admittedly, but I think part of it was people want to watch football to watch football. People don't want to have politics thrown in their face. And this is something that I think there's a lot of people out there that say, really? You know, you're making millions of dollars playing a game. And, you know, you find the United States to be, uh, you're so appalled by conditions in the United States that you're deciding that you're going to, like, not stand and respect the flag. And I understand a lot of this is symbolic, but this is the consequence. This is, in my opinion, what happens when you allow this type of stuff to go on. And the fact that the NFL and the Browns have appeared to take the side of the protesters because they don't have the guts to tell them to knock it off. All right, I, I'm not faulting the cops. I think this is a reasonable response, you know, by the police. Um, let's talk to, uh, let's see, we've got Steve in New Holstein. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with the cameramen and the yeah. networks also that continue to put these guys on TV. Yep. If you take the stage away, this will go away. Yeah, but the media, but the TV networks don't want it to go away, Steve. I mean, they they want the controversy. They want people tuning in to see the people that are are kneeling on the sidelines. I mean, they 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 want the ratings, you know. That and that's just the reality that's out there. The guys that are watching sports want to watch sports. We don't want to see this all the time. Yeah, they really just need to go away from this, and the NFL needs to stand up and say no, no more of this. Yeah, no, thank you. you, Thanks for calling, Steve. You make a really interesting point because you wonder if. On the one hand, the TV networks show this because they are courting controversy. I mean, they, they think on the one hand, people are tuning in 
to see this controversy and it gives something for the talking heads to talk about and in general you know if you look at like ESPN and stuff most of the talking heads are liberal and so they're just appalled appalled that for example a Cleveland Police Association would decide you know we we're going to do our own counter protest so in general that's kind of the the mainstream mantra it's like the, these police these players they're just courageous for doing this type of stuff but you do raise an interesting point I got to kind of think it through because like I say the ratings on these NFL broadcasts they're really still high but but they're they're down and there's a lot of reasons why they're down I do wonder if the networks shoot themselves in the foot because yes they, they generate some of that controversy that they get to talk about but if big picture they're they're People are being turned off by it. And look, and I'm not saying, look, we're Packers fans. We're going to watch the Packers games regardless. But that that game, that 3 o'clock game or that 12 o'clock game that's on TV, the Cleveland Browns playing whoever, you really don't care about the outcome one way or the other. It's those those games and the casual fans that end up getting turned off. In any event, big story number three, I don't know how this is all going to play out. The police chief, the Browns, and the dissident players on one side – the Cleveland Police Union on the other. Mark the tape on this one. I'm with the union. It's 954. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in just a couple minutes. When will we finally say enough is enough when it comes to drunk driving? Stick around. It's 955. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 957, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, our text line just exploding. Let's stop playing the national anthem at all the games. That would stop this. That's from Mike. Uh, another text, simple solution, do away with the national anthem. Don and Racine text, play the anthem before the players come out of the locker room. Um, all those are things that I guess you'd have to consider because we have another text. I no longer watch the NFL just because of that. Again, it's not going to stop people from watching the Packers, but casual fans, maybe. Hey, an update. On Friday, um, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit decided they would not rehear the challenge to Wisconsin's right-to-work law. A couple months ago, um, there was a federal – the U.S. Court of Appeals um, for – Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin um, issued a decision upholding the state's right-to-work law. This is, of course, the law that stops businesses and unions from reaching deals that require all workers to pay union dues. Um, The people challenging it, the unions, asked for what is called a rehearing and bonk. They wanted the entire Seventh Circuit, all the active judges, to consider the case and uh, on Friday, the Seventh Circuit said, nope, we're, we're not interested. None of the judges in the original three-judge panel want to rehear it. No other active judge wants to rehear it. Um, the chances of the Supreme Court of the United States taking this case are slim to none, and slim is on a bus heading out of town. So it appears that Wisconsin's right-to-work law will continue to be the law of the state for for. Well, ever, essentially. It's 9.59. When we come back, when is enough enough when it comes to drunk drivers? Stick around. It's 10.14. Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. Um, That was Attorney General Jeff Sessions saying what we expected that he was going to say um and, and here here's the the, the interesting thing and again let, let me give you the uptake on this um the the what they call the dreamers this daca uh, act it, it's not it's not a law 
what Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, is saying, and he is absolutely right, and this is going to get lost in a lot of the coverage, it's whether you agree in principle or not with the idea that um, people who came to this country were brought to this country by their parents who entered the country illegally and essentially grown up in the United States and aren't causing problems, whether you agree or not with the basic principle that maybe we should find a way, if not for citizenship, to allow them allow them to stay as long as they're not creating problems and as long as they are productive members of American society. You can agree or you can disagree with that. But what I don't think anybody can disagree with is the fact that the decision to do this, the executive order issued by Barack Obama was unconstitutional and was illegal. And that's what the concern of the Trump administration has. There are immigration laws that are on the books. And you can argue, like I say, that the immigration laws need to be changed or maybe should be changed and that Congress should get its act together. But we do not have kings in this country. We have presidents. We have various branches of Congress. We have branches of government. And a president just can't unilaterally say, well, Congress isn't doing what I want. So here I am going to create this and by an order I am going to circumvent the law. I'm going to say this law that says that these people are in this country illegally, well, that's not going to apply anymore. I decree, I decree that they can stay under these different conditions. That is unconstitutional. It is not the authority of the president to do that, and it is illegal. And that's what the attorney general is saying, and he's absolutely right. He is saying, hey, we've looked at what the president, former president did. Um, there's these court challenges that are out there. We cannot defend this legally. It was a gross overreach of presidential power. And and the attorney general is absolutely right. So this decision now kicks the ball to where it should have been in the first place, to Congress. And the attorney general and the Trump administration is saying, look, if you like this program um, and, and you think this is something that should stay, then let's do it right. Let's pass a law and send it to the White House, you know, for signature. Let's get some consideration of this. Let's do this the, the right way. Now, the fact that Congress is dysfunctional, the fact that you have widespread disagreement among Republicans, you know, we heard this when we talked about this. This was a big story number one at the start of the show. And a number of a number of you called in, and you, you, a number of people called in and said, hey, we disagree with this. You know, we what part of illegal don't you understand, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand that this is a hot potato for Republicans because it pits some of the more pragmatic people, and I like to think of myself as that, uh, on immigration versus some of the, the hardliners who make the argument, and I understand that, what part of illegal, you know, don't you end up, you know, don't you understand? So the, I don't know what Congress is going to do on this, and, and candidly, Congress probably doesn't like to have the ball kicked back to them, but this is, this is, this is how the system is supposed to work. It goes back to... The mid-1970s, about separation of powers, and I thought we would just take a second, because for everybody who might be upset with the Trump administration, say, oh, they shouldn't do this or whatever, I think maybe we need a remedial course in civics. And it goes back to the 1970s. One of, the, one of these things, once you see it, it sticks with you forever. 
how a bill becomes a law from the old schoolhouse rock. Um, I'm just a bill on a hill. Well, you sure got to climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the Capitol City. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. Some folks back home decided they wanted a law passed, so they called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. Then he sat down and wrote me out and introduced me to Congress, and I became a bill. And I'll remain a bill until they decide to make me a law. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck in committee and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me be alone. I hope and pray that they will, but today I am still just a bill. For everybody who decides they want to comment on this decision today, as you go back and watch that schoolhouse rock thing, it explains, hey, you're just a bill on Capitol Hill until you become a law. And if you want to change immigration law, well, send the bill to Capitol Hill and vote on it, period. It's 1020. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Well, you sure got to climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the Capitol City. It's a long, long journey. It's 1023. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Yes, we're getting lots of texts. People go, oh, that's school, that's schoolhouse rock. But that's how a bill becomes a, a law. And, and again, regardless of how you feel about the, the dreamers, and whether or not we, we need to, you know, create a way that 800,000 people who were essentially brought in as children by their parents illegally, whether they need to stay or not, bottom line is it's got to be done by law. It can't be done by a former president who kind of thought he was a king. And, and that's what the Trump administration is saying. Hey, we're going to rescind this. We're giving you, Congress, six months to get your act together and figure it out and decide one way or the other. That's actually the right way to proceed. All right. I, I admit this is one of these things that I get up on my, my high horse uh, about. To me, the problem in the state of Wisconsin with, with drunken driving, it, it's really it's not the person who makes the mistake and has the, you know, one too many beers at the fish fry on Friday and then learns from that mistake. That's that's not where the problem is. The problem is the repeat hardcore drunk driver who gets caught over and over and over again and refuses to learn from anything. You know, the, the numbers are actually... Um, 
almost staggering when you consider, you know, how bad the problem in Wisconsin is with repeat drunk drivers. Again, not that person that makes the mistake and then learns from it. Okay, here, here's the numbers from the State Department of Transportation. All right, um, one-third of the state's drunk driving convictions in 2015, and that's the last year that they have the full numbers, one-third were repeat offenders. Let's put this another way. Um, 223,000 repeat offenders. 223,000 repeat offenders. About 52,000 convictions were for a third offense. Now, I, I'm look, I, I'm sorry, you get caught drunk driving once. I understand that can happen. And, and then people deal with it, and they say, okay, it's not going to happen again. All right, 52,000 people who were convicted in 2015, just that year, were convicted for a third offense. Almost 3,000, I hope you're sitting down, almost 3,000 were for a seventh offense or more. I mean, that, that's just, just staggering. 52,000 convictions in 2015 alone were third offense or more. All right. Now, in Wisconsin, as a general rule, it is very, very difficult to lose your driver's license. Under the law now, um, the state can revoke people's driver's licenses, but typically um, it can only be either suspended or revoked for drunk driving for several months up to three years. So there's a new bill that's being introduced in the state Senate by Senator uh, Van Wangard from the Racine area. And what this bill would do is it would require the DOT to permanently revoke the license of anyone caught driving four or more times. The agency, the DOT, would also have to permanently revoke the license of anyone who commits two or more drunken driving offenses and two or more convictions for serious crimes involving a vehicle. So for drunk driving convictions, you lose your license permanently. Now, interestingly, in the world of the government, permanently doesn't mean permanently because under this bill, people who lost their license would have to wait 10 years before they could apply for a new one. So permanent revocation, but you could still apply to get it back after 10 years. But you wouldn't have a valid driver's license for 10 years after your fourth drunk driving conviction, at a minimum. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand that even if, you know, you had somebody whose license was, quote-unquote, permanently revoked, that wouldn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't drive. Lots of people decide, what the heck, I'm going to get behind the wheel of the car anyways. But I think this would be a great start. 414-799-1620. Should somebody who is convicted four times of drunken driving lose their license for a minimum of 10 years? 414-799-1620. I say, you bet. We discuss next. It's 1028. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Some 
lawmakers are now considering an additional $100 fee for drivers of hybrid vehicles. Is this a good idea? If you drive a hybrid, would you be willing to pay? Weigh in with Scafidi and Bilstead at 135 today. Tomorrow in the Senate Judiciary Committee, there's a hearing on this proposal that was out there last year, and it died in the last session in the state Senate. Van Wangard, who's one of the um, Senate, Republican senator from Racine, he's back with this. And it's, in my opinion, it's a great idea. It says for four times, convicted drunk drivers, you've got to be convicted four times, you lose your license for at least 10 years. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that that means that there's, it's going to stop all drunks um, from, from driving. But I think it would get perhaps some of them off the road. And candidly, I, I, if, if you've gotten four drunk driving convictions, I think that there needs to be a long period of time before, you know, you get your license back. So, look, I understand that there's people who do this kind of stuff. Maybe they can get their act together and maybe they can demonstrate that, hey, I I haven't had a drink in 10 years or 15 years. Give me my license back. So, I mean, they get a chance to do that. But for drunk driving convictions, at least for, I think, a decade, not having your license is a good thing. Doug in McGuanago. Doug, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. My problem is, is I don't think it goes far enough because I've got a neighbor who's a six-timer. Um, six-time convicted? Wow. Six-times convicted, yeah. He wow. spent uh, ooh, at least a year, maybe a year and a half in a pokey for the last one. I mean, it, it wasn't jail. He went, he went to prison. Right, right, sure. Um, but the problem is, as long as they continue to own a car, they're going to do it anyhow. Right. So it should be while you're in this 10-year revocation, you can no longer own an automobile, mm-hmm. and that should be rigidly enforced. And then if they are caught driving drunk, the car should be confiscated. Yeah. Well, then the argument I had with him, well, what if it's, what if it's not my car? Well, then the person who let you use it loses their car. Yeah. Well, but what, what if I didn't have permission? Well, then you stole their car, and you should be charged with operating without permission. Right. I want to make one other point. There's two different kinds of drunk drivers. Now, I haven't driven drunk since I was in my early 20s, and even then I wasn't completely blotto, but I was borderline. I was one of those scared-to-death, paranoid, would get pulled over for going too slow. Right. Then there's the kind that get blotto and drive 100 miles an hour and wipe out a minivan full of six people. We need to discriminate a little bit, have an extra punishment for the kind of person who totally loses all judgment. When well, I mean, well, I mean, th- well, we do to an extent. Thanks. I mean, we, we do to an extent if you're if you're over certain, for example, first time drunk driver, drunk driving offenses in Wisconsin. Um, if they're if you're over a certain blood alcohol level, like I want to say point two, I could be off on that, but it, but if you're over a certain blood alcohol level, there, there's additional penalties that you have to have, like a, um, you, you have to have like the ignition interlock. But I mean, I want to go back to what you first said as well. Um, I don't think we in Wisconsin are at a point where we're ready to seize cars yet. But you know what? I, I would not have a problem for repeat drunk drivers. And, again, I, I'm not talking about the first or the second time, and I understand some of you think I'm even soft with that. But, I mean, I, I think by the time, you know, you get to the fourth offense, if you're still in, if you're still getting behind the wheel of a car, 
um, you, we need to do something to get you out of that car. And if that means taking the car, well, okay, I wouldn't have a problem with that. But at the very least, I, I think you start by pulling driver's license. And again, I'm not naive. I realize there's all sorts of people who drive regardless of whether they have a license or not. I'm one of the guys, though, that think that, that there should be additional penalties for that. That the truth of the matter is, if you want to drink yourself blotto, that's, that's a decision that you are making, and it affects you, it affects your family, it affects people that are close to you. But once you make that decision to get behind the wheel of an automobile, that's when it affects all the rest of us, because it could be you or me that are on the road when we run into that person who, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, blind drunk who crosses the center line on the highway and slams into us. That's when it's everybody else's difference uh, factor. Dick and Grafton. Dick, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Jeff, your first caller kind of stole my thunder. Uh, I, I, I agree with, with Van Wangard's uh, proposal, and I think it should be enhanced. Once you've gotten this 10-year uh, suspension or revocation of the license, the state should be pulling the registration of the vehicles, mm-hmm. and the state should be pulling the license plates. And then, if you're caught driving, it's an automatic six months in jail. You've got to put the teeth in it so yep. that people don't go out. If they want to go out and continue to, to drink, that's their business, as you've indicated. But for them to get on the highway, you have to have significant penalties to keep them off. And the argument that the first caller's neighbor said, well, what if, what if I use my, my daughter's car, for an example? Okay, did your daughter give you permission? Well, yeah, she gave me permission. Fine. 60 days in jail for the daughter. Did you use the daughter's car without permission? No, I just took it. Fine, you stole an automobile. That's a right. felony. Yep, go go after. No, thanks for calling. And I don't disagree. I mean, I think I, again, you get these. I, I used to deal with this when it came to forfeiture back in another life with drug dealers. Well, we didn't we didn't know they were going to drive the car to a drug deal. Um, but the, the 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 bottom line is, you know, people need to be accountable, and that's why I I, I try to be. I, I try to be the word I'm using today on the show is, is pragmatic. Look, I understand that people can make a mistake. I, I I get it. I understand that somebody can stay too long at the office party or have that one too many beer at the cocktail lounge or or whatever. And and most people who end up getting caught learn from their mistakes and say it's never going to happen again. But there are a segment, and I guess. I, I was sort of stunned to see these numbers. I mean, 220,000 people in 2015 who were convicted of multiple offenses. It was second or more drunk driving offenses. You know, 2,800 convicted of seventh or more. I mean, to me, that's not – that. that's just – refusing to recognize that you have a problem most people do this they learn from it and i I think you need to have a penalty system that doesn't treat the 10th time offender like the first time offender so i mean i think you need to have that decision but i'm telling you by the time you've racked up four convictions for drunk driving which probably means you've been drunk driving 400 times you you got to get the heck off the street and if taking away your driver's license and keeping it for 10 years discourages some people from driving, I'm, I'm all in favor of it. Clint in Bayview. Clint, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I support this. Um, I'm actually a recovering alcoholic. 
you know, sober about seven years. Congratulations. I know it's very hard. I'm sure. Is is it a struggle every day? Uh, Not anymore, thank goodness. You know, I mean, it's one day at a time. um, But, you know, I I, I certainly like my life now (laughs) more than what it was back then. Um, But I think, you know, there's a lot of people who maybe don't realize they have a problem. Uh, and I think part of the reason is because our laws are so lax. You know, when, when you get into trouble, you know, it, it's hard to realize you have a problem if there's really no repercussion mm-hmm. for it. Uh, someone once told me, you know, before I was ready to admit I had a problem, you know, they said, do you think you have a drinking problem? I said, no, no, sometimes I just overdo it. And they said, well, well let me tell you something. If drinking causes a problem, then drinking is a problem. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get it right away, but, you know, I do now. So I, I definitely am in support of this. I think we need to educate people, you know, and help them, uh, you know, the ones who do have a problem, help them with education. I mean, there's no law that gives anybody the legal right to drink anything and get behind the wheel of a right. car. And as my uh, friend who's an officer, you know, this whole notion of there being a legal limit, he said, you know, if you're pulled over and, and you blow under a .08, you can still be arrested because you're still impaired. If the officer thinks you're impaired enough that you're causing a danger, you know, you're still driving sure. drunk at that point. It, right. it just then becomes the burden of proof for the officer to have to prove in court. You know, whereas if you're over a point oh eight, there's no question, the officer doesn't need to prove anything. But I think that's one of the things that we need to do is educate people say, listen, you might have a problem. Uh, you know, and, and I think harsher consequences, you know, the, the first or, or second or third right. time might do it. Because like you said, anybody can make mistakes. Um, but for people who aren't alcoholics like me, they learn that first time. I didn't learn the first right. time. And right. I think part of that was because everything was so relaxed. Oh, don't worry about it. Just go to a class. You know, that sort of thing. Right. No, thanks for coming. I appreciate and, and first of all, Clint. Again, congratulations! Seven years sobriety is is an accomplishment, and uh, and and I know that that's got to be difficult. I, I've always been blessed. I don't have an addictive personality, but I know people that do. And again, I, I just think I need think we need to be smart about this. But the truth is, if 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 you're talking three, four, five, six, seven times, you do not belong behind the wheel of an automobile unless unless you can demonstrate um, over a long period of time that you've You've dealt with your demons. I mean, driving is a privilege. It is not a, a right. And the, the truth of the matter is, with these repeat drunk drivers, if you allow people to continue to do this, sooner or later, they're going to kill themselves or they're going to kill somebody else or seriously maim them. And we got to do something to try to. And I understand in Wisconsin, we've got a culture, we've got a drinking culture. And I understand that we have, you know, some of these towns where there's bars on every corner and things like that. And, and, and that's fine. And I'm. I'm not saying don't drink. I like to have a beer as well as the next guy. I, I do, I do, I do. But getting blind drunk and getting behind the wheel of a car over and over again. Matter of fact, I have a text that, that makes the point. And nowadays, with Uber and Lyft and all these different things that are out there, there's no excuse for somebody to drive drunk repeatedly. It's 1047. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This bill gets a hearing. Actually, I think it's getting a hearing in the Judiciary Committee today. I've been one day off because of Labor Day. But I think it's getting a hearing today. Um, As far as I know, nobody has registered against it. It died in the state Senate last year. Hopefully that's not going to happen this year. It's 1047. This is Jeff Wagner.
It's 1051, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJs. The Brewers continue their series at Great American Ballpark tonight. It's game two for the Brewers against the Reds. Our coverage from Cincinnati, it gets underway at 535, early game today. Check it out. How cool is this when you think about it? You've got the Brewers um, who are in a certainly on the periphery of a pennant race. One and a half games behind Colorado for the second wild card spot. Three and a half games behind Chicago. A couple tough losses. Yesterday was a tough loss as well. But at the same time, they're in the picture. And I think I still remember back to when we did our opening day show, sitting there and talking to everybody, as we always do, from Mark Atanasio to David Stearns, the general manager, to the players. I think if we would have said, hey, it's now after Labor Day, and the Brewers are still in the hunt for a playoff spot, either to win the division or to get the wild card, you know, would you have taken this? And I think most people, everybody would have said, you you bet. So regardless of how the season turns out, it's been a fun ride, and you can hear the latest game tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, 535 is when our coverage starts. Okay, it, it's, it's difficult for me to feel too much sympathy for my friends down at the Pottawatomie Casino. Uh, here, here is the story as reported by the Journal Sentinel. Gambling revenue flat. Gambling revenue inched up about 1.5% in the past year as the Potawatomi Tribe's Milwaukee Casino um, saw a modest increase that mirrors the trend of flat growth in the Midwest markets. And so the, the point is that when it comes to casino gambling, um, we, we have a mature market. In other words, there's, you know, it's not really growing. There's not lots of new people that are coming in and gambling. So it, it's kind of flat, flat growth. All right. Um, the tribe's net win, that is the net amount lost by gamblers at its Milwaukee casino during the 12 month period that ended July 31st. Okay. was up about 1.5%. BD, who's producing the show. What do you would you estimate their net win was? I mean, so this is this is the amount of money. You go in, you play the slots, you play blackjack. You put money on the table. You put money into the slot machine. You take some out. Some is left over for the casino. What would you guess their net win would be? Take a guess. Pick a number. Okay. $400 million. So, in other words, the, the Potawatomi. For the monopoly that they were given by former Governor Jim Doyle to run a casino in the Milwaukee area that is essentially a monopoly for southeastern Wisconsin. Last year, based on estimates, and they've got to put the estimates together because they're not required to report actual winnings, but you can kind of figure it out based on how much money they pay the county and how much money they pay the city. Um, $400 million dollars. Net win. Now that that's not. I mean, they, they still you've got to pay. You got to pay the employees and things like that. But I don't know that there's too many businesses that that are pulling down a net profit of four hundred million dollars. The tribe got uh, three hundred ninety-five million the previous year and three hundred ninety million the year before that. Now, out of that, the city and county of Milwaukee each receive payments of about a little bit over five and a half million dollars. So um, they're, they're still they're getting money, but four hundred million dollars net win. All right. Now, this comes from the perspective of somebody who has been known to place a bet from time to time. But if you ever wonder 
you know, why they're able to build those big hotels and casinos and places like Las Vegas. You know, where, where does the money come from? Well, I mean, all you have to do is look at numbers like this. Just the, the Potawatomi, little old Milwaukee, they, they, they pulled $400 million in a net win, which again explains why those casinos in Vegas exist and why they, they weren't built on the backs of people who go out to Vegas and win. If you decide to do that, have fun, enjoy yourself, but recognize um, at the end of the day, it's the casinos that make the dough. It's 1055. It's 1108, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, so glad to have you with us. Okay, a lot of talk today about immigration, the Attorney General coming out and making his announcement that the executive order that Barack Obama issued, essentially creating the, these dreamers, um, that was going to be ultimately rescinded. Congress now has six months to get its act together. There, There's another aspect of immigration that I, I think Congress needs to take up as well. And when we were having this conversation at the start of the show about this, a couple of you alluded to it. It is the notion of birthright citizenship. Now, follow me when, when I go through this. After the Civil War, 1868, Congress passed the 14th Amendment. The purpose of the 14th Amendment was to make clear that slaves who had been freed after the Civil War, that they were citizens. That was what the 14th Amendment was intended to do. It was like, all right, we don't want any argument about whether, you know, somebody who's now a freed slave, we don't want any argument about whether they are entitled to citizenship or not. So the 14th Amendment, 1868, says, all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States and of the state where they reside. So no argument about whether, you know, somebody who was a slave, if you were born in the in the United States, you are a slave. You are a, a citizen. No arguments about whether, you know, if you were born as a slave, does that make you a citizen? That was the real purpose behind the 14th uh, Amendment. All right, but let's look at the language of this. All persons born or naturalized in the U.S., are citizens of the United States. Well, a, a, in modern times, that hasn't applied to, we don't, we don't have slavery, so it, that, that hasn't been the effect. What that says on its face is that somebody, if you are born in the United States, you are a citizen of the United States. So if you have, I don't know, a, a couple that is here from Germany, um, husband and wife, and the wife is pregnant, and she goes into labor and gives birth in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they're visiting. Um, the child that is born of that couple, who are German citizens, who are here in this country visiting, that child, by virtue of the fact that they were born in the United States, that mom and dad happen to be in the United States, that child is an American citizen because they were born in the USA. Mom and dad aren't citizens, but the child is a citizen. Also, the way birthright citizenship operates is it doesn't matter, under the language of the 14th Amendment, it doesn't matter 
whether mom and dad are in this country, or I guess it would just be mom, dad doesn't have to be here, but whether um, the birth parents are in this country legally or not. So imagine a scenario where mom or mom and dad come into this country illegally. They're here from wherever. They're not legally entitled to be here. Mom is pregnant. Mom gives birth to the child. And the child then becomes a citizen under birthright citizenship. Um, the Pew Research Center estimates that in 2014, which is the last year that they have numbers available, about 275,000 children were born in the United States to parents of undocumented persons. Those 200, and that's, by the way, that's about 7% of all births. So if those numbers are, are accurate, and, and again, maybe it's, maybe it's 300,000, maybe it's a quarter million, who knows? But the numbers are 275,000 born to undocumented persons. So these are children of people who are in the country largely illegally, and the kids now become citizens. Um, according to Pew, again, some 4.7 million U.S.-born children under the age of 18 were living with unauthorized parents. And, and this is what's happening as a result of people coming into this country illegally, giving birth, and then the child automatically becomes a citizen. Now, now why should we care about that? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, once the child becomes a citizen, as a practical matter, it becomes much more difficult to do anything with regard to mom or dad. You know, are you going to break up the family? The child is allowed to be here legally. Are you going to send mom and dad back? Are you going? To, how can you end up breaking up the family? In addition, once the child becomes a citizen, they're automatically going to be entitled to all sorts of the benefits of citizenship, including access to all the public benefits and, and things like that. Right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To give you some perspective, among developed nations, birthright citizenship exists in Canada and exists in the United States and and almost nowhere else among developed uh, countries. If, for example, you, you and your spouse are traveling to France, and um, you're, let's assume you're a guy, your spouse gives birth in France. That child is not a French citizen merely because, you know, the, the woman was pregnant and gave birth in France. I mean, it's not based on location. In the United States, it is. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, there's some really, really smart lawyers and judges out there who think that you could get rid of birthright citizenship by just passing a law as opposed to having a constitutional amendment. I, I don't know. I, I've read the arguments, and it's kind of like angels dancing on the head of a pin. But, but as to the basic premise, this is what I would like to discuss with you. The basic question of, should you automatically be a citizen just because you are born in the United States? Um, or... If mom and dad are in this country, mom and dad have no ties to this country. Mom and dad are in this country legally. 
Should the child, should the offspring automatically be a citizen simply because mom gave birth here? 414-799-1620. My answer would be no. I think this law is antiquated. I understand the purpose of the constitutional amendment to make sure that we're not arguing about whether or not slaves are citizens. But I don't think it was ever intended to say, okay, a quarter million people who are children of people who are in this country illegally, they automatically become citizens. 414-799-1620 is the number we discuss next. Um, If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1116. This is Jeff Wagner. Eleven eighteen, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Okay, it's called birthright citizenship, and I, I actually think this is a significant something significant that Congress needs to take on. The idea that if if the birth mother, mom, is in this country illegally, gives birth to the child, the child automatically becomes a citizen simply by virtue of the fact that they were born in the United States. At two hundred, the estimates are. A couple years ago, the last year that they have numbers, somewhere in the neighborhood of 275,000 people, children, were born in that situation. They automatically became citizens. And, of course, that then really complicates the whole immigration issue. Canada and the U.S. are the only two developed countries that have this policy. It was designed in the U.S. in 1868 to make sure that there wasn't a hassle about slaves being citizens. That's not how it's playing out now, and I think it needs to be looked at. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Donna in Jackson. Donna, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I do have a question. Um, My granddaughter was born in the British West Indies, the Grand Cayman Island to be exact, and when she was born, she was given the choice of having American citizenship, British, or she could be a citizen. It was a call of each country. Uh-huh. She could have dual citizenship. Do we not have that, or is that unheard of? Or <laughs> Okay, we're, mom, mom and dad were U.S. citizens? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, well, she's, she's automatically a U.S. citizen. Now, whether... I, and I quickly get beyond my depth on these things, Donna. <laughs> so she's she's automatically a U.S. citizen, whether she's – and I just don't know enough about the British West Indies or, or whatever uh-huh. as to whether you qualify for dual citizenship. But if mom or dad are U.S. citizens, she's automatically a citizen regardless of where she's born. Mm-hmm. And they could accept – they could have dual citizenship. They were told mm-hmm. that. Which do you choose? Of course, they chose American right. citizenship. But I was just wondering if we offer that or if that's such a unusual thing to offer dual citizenship. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I guess. And again, I, I quickly get beyond my depth. I, I don't I, I don't I guess I let, let's take the example of, of Mexico. I I don't know. You you have two people who are in this country illegally from Mexico. They give birth. I know the child is a U.S. citizen. Would would the child also qualify for dual citizenship under Mexico? I don't know. It's, I don't, don't know the answer to that question. But I do know that they're, they are a U.S. citizen simply by virtue of where they were born. And I think that's nuts. I, I mean, again, 
I, I have no if it's if mom and or dad are, are U.S. citizens. I, of course, you're born in the United States. You're a citizen. You're born in the West Indies. You're a U.S. citizen. That's not the issue. But merely by virtue of the fact that you get into this country and, and are able to give birth, should that make the child a U.S. citizen? Because then all sorts of things flow from that. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to um, let's see Eric in Menominee Falls. Eric, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Morning. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking sure. my call. What do you think? Um, so I'm one of my good friends is uh, uh, he's a teacher in the area. Um, same, very similar situation. His parents were from Mexico. Um, they came over here undocumented. Um, had him. Um, the fam as a family, they were all deported. Um, and he has since come back. Right. Um, he's having he's having a very difficult time. He's trying to keep down a uh, keep down a teaching job on a on a renewable work visa. Um, and he's having just a, a really a really rough time um, trying to uh, gain gain citizenship. Um, I mean, I think that what uh, what they need to do find a way to see if you know these um, these immigrants who are applying for citizen citizenship status. Um, there needs to be a way for them to find out if these are high performing members of society because if they are. Um, I don't see a reason why they shouldn't be granted um, citizenship status now, as it is. Okay, your your friend wasn't a citizen, right? He wasn't he he wasn't born in the United States. He was a child when he was brought here, right? No, no, he was he was born here. He was born here, uh, you know, twenty twenty five years ago, um, and the fa- the whole family was um, asked to leave. Yeah, I guess I I think I, I don't. My understanding is if you're born. If you are born here, you are you are a U.S. citizen. Now I don't know if there's something if the whole family ends up getting deported. That see one of the arguments about birthright citizenship is that it's it is especially nowadays it's much more difficult to to break up a family. You ha- you have a child who is a U.S. citizen, mom and dad and sisters aren't. It's much more difficult to deport everybody. I mean the term and some people. Some people find it objectionable. I, I don't use it because I, I, I don't use it on a regular basis because I don't want to offend people. Um, it is, is anchor babies. The idea is that you, you come into this country, you have the baby. The baby then becomes the anchor that keeps mom and dad who are here illegally. It keeps them in the country. Um, that That's not true as much anymore as maybe it, it used to be. But, I mean, it is th- this issue. I mean, se- if 7% or, or let's say this number is high, let's say it's 5%, that's still a lot of of uh, children who become U.S. citizens simply by virtue of where they're born, not what the background, the country of national origin of their, their parents were. And I guess I just think if you think about it, it makes no sense to say just because you were in a particular place when you gave birth that that should confer citizenship. 414-799-1620. Kelly in Milwaukee. Kelly, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my sure. call. This kind of, you know, I, I totally disagree with the 14th Amendment. It kind of works in reverse with me. I was a U.S. soldier in Germany, married to a German national. She was my wife. She could travel back and forth to the United States with me. Right. She had our son in a German hospital because we, the closest American hospital was like 95 miles away. We couldn't have made it. Right. So he became a German national. He has his only birth certificate is a German birth certificate. I have a copy of it. He served in the United States military. He was in the United States Army, served in Iraq. Right. Went to Iraq, came back. 
he did not get naturalized by his mother after we had divorced. He had not been naturalized by his mother. His mother remarried an American service member. He retired there back in the United States. My son, my daughter-in-law, and my three granddaughters are stuck in Berlin, Germany, because the United States government will not give them a permanent travel visa to come back to the United States. Even though you as the dad was an American citizen, or, or you're an American exactly. citizen, obviously. But, of course, if he had been born, the same scenario, if he had been born in the United States, then there wouldn't have been any question about this at all. Exactly. Exactly. But they gave him the opportunity to serve in the United States military, all right, and defend this country, but won't give him the, the rights to be able to come back here and live. Um, I'm with you, Kelly. That makes thanks. That that makes no sense to me. That that makes no sense. And again, I, I I quickly get beyond my depth about you know what what happens in that scenario. I would have thought that there was dual citizenship, but obviously you you've lived through this, not me. Let's talk to uh, let's see, Jenna in Burlington. Jenna, good morning. You're on six twenty WTMJ. Yes, Jeff. Um, as soon as I heard they overturned the DACA, uh, my first thought was that they, this. Uh, Becoming an automatic citizen, if you're born here as a legal parent, should be overturned. Uh, number one, those children, they keep on filling up our schools, and our schools are overcrowded as it is, and there's just more and more and more children, and, you know, it kind of needs to be stopped. I think if they did that, that may, we may not even need to have a wall. If you, if you know that your children, children can't be born here and ha- can go to school, and stay here, then we probably wouldn't need a, need a wall. Well, I th- you know, you, it, it clearly, I think that's a step, thanks for the call, that's a step that you need to, to be taken. I mean, I have a note here from a text from Ann in Spring Grove. Um, you know, many people coming, many pregnant people coming in from Mexico do not just happen to be in the U.S. when the baby is born. When we travel to California, um, you know, um, we would go to Tijuana many times. Um, Every single time we were there, there were many women about to deliver coming over the border for only one thing. That would be they give birth in the United States, and, you know, she makes the point that it needs to stop. Like I say, to me, this is something that makes no sense at all. It it, it just doesn't. I, I... and my, my evidence of this is, again, you look at developed countries, Canada allows this, the U.S. allows it, and pretty much nowhere else allows it. Um, there's no reason for this, and I, I think that's something we need to change. Like I say, there's really smart people out there that don't think you need to modify the 14th Amendment. I don't know if that's right or not, whether you could just pass a law. But th- this whole idea of birthright citizenship, it made sense for slaves in 1868. It does not make sense for people in this country illegally in 2017. It's 1128. This is Jeff Wagner. Eleven thirty-six. Jeff Wack, six twenty. WTMJ. Okay. In the last segment, we took a little historical walk down, walk down historical lane, talking about the history of like birthright citizenship. All right. As a launching point to this, um, Andrew Jackson, one of the founders of, of what became the modern Democratic Party. Um, Andrew Jackson was the president from, like, 1828 to 1836. Interestingly enough, our current president, Donald Trump, um, he's he's a huge fan of Andrew Andrew Jackson. Um, he... 
apparently relates a lot. He, he views Andrew Jackson as sort of a populist hero who fought against government corruption, you know, the whole drain the swamp thing. Well, before there was Donald Trump, there was, was Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson has kind of fallen out of favor because even, even among Democrats, because even though he is, again, one of the founders of the modern Democratic Party, Andrew Jackson was from Tennessee and he was a slave owner. And this is, I mean, like I say, he served as president from 1828 to 1836. He was from Tennessee. He owned a plantation, and he had slaves. And so the fact that he was a slave owner, that now in this effort we have to sanitize history, well, r- regardless of the fact that his his ideals and a lot of, you know, his approach to thing things intellectually forms the, the basis of the modern Democratic Party. Well, we have to pretend he didn't exist because he was a slave owner, and we can't judge people by the standards of their times. We have to judge them by you know our standards going on 200 years later. In any event, Andrew Jackson is also the guy who is on, President Andrew Jackson is on the $20 bill. Reach into your wallet, Scott Worris, who's now producing the show. Pull out all those 20s you have in your wallet, and, and what you will see is it's a picture. What are you shaking your head for? Oh, you've only got hundreds. All right, you've only got hundreds. Okay, well, that's that's it. Well, I, I, I've got... I, I think maybe I I think I've I've got maybe I think I've I think I've got a I've got a twenty there yeah um do you even know who's on the hundred Scott do you know who's on the hundred Franklin of course oh yes I, I, exactly I mean right of, of course it's it's Benjamin Franklin the guy that walks around like you do with hundreds all the time you would know that anyways Andrew Jackson is on the twenty dollar bill during the Obama administration there was a push to change the people directed on on our currency. Originally, there was a push to take Alexander Hamilton off the $10 bill in favor of putting a woman's portrait on that. And then there was a huge debate about what woman are you going to put on the the $10 bill. Well, ultimately, that one got shelved because people didn't want to take Alexander Hamilton off the, the $10 bill. So the plan became we're going to bump Andrew Jackson off the $20 bill, and we're going to replace her with uh, black abolitionist Harriet Tubman. So that was that was the plan. And you remember during the Obama administration, the Treasury Secretary had this, this big public vote and things, and there was all these different things. You know, what woman should be on it? Should it be Amelia Earhart? You know, et cetera, et cetera. All right, well, new new sheriff in town, and it is, of course, President Trump. So here's here's the report from late last week. The Trump administration is now sending messages, um, or at least sending signals, that Harriet Tubman might not replace President Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill after all. Uh, the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, he, and they asked him, they said, okay, are, are you going to go ahead with redesigning this the $20 bill over the course of the next couple of years, like Obama had announced. And his response is, people have been on the bills for a long period of time. Um, this is something I guess we'll consider, but right now we've got a lot more important issues to focus on. And then, of course, this is complicated by the fact that President Trump is big fan of, you know, Andrew Jackson. And back when he was running for office, after they made this announcement, he said, I would love to leave Andrew Jackson. And, and maybe if, if we have to do something, maybe come up with another denomination.
Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I have nothing against Harriet Tubman. I, I don't. But at the same time, um, you know, the the people portrayed on our various currency have been the same for a number of years. And in all honesty, I don't know that I think that there is a need to make a change, whether it's today, tomorrow, or in, in 2020. Would this be an insult to women if the change weren't made? Would it be an insult to people who respect the the storied career and the sacrifices made by black abolitionist Harriet Tubman? If Trump backs down on this, will it be a huge mistake? 414-799-1620. Candidly, um, I, I agree with the Treasury Secretary. I think there's a lot of larger issues out there. And in all honesty... Um, I'm not convinced. I, candidly, if you want to recognize Harriet Tubman, maybe there's ways that you can do it without changing, without bumping Andrew Jackson from the $20 bill. One of the things that they were floating is, I'll put her on the $2 bill. But, of course, then people were saying, oh, but the $2 bill doesn't circulate much. Well, okay, 414-799-1620. Actually, in the scheme of things, I think this is about issue number 400 that needs to be dealt with. And candidly, if the president were to say, hey, I'm not going to go along with Obama, what Obama did, I wouldn't have a problem. But how about you? Should we change the $20 bill? We discuss next. It's 1142. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1146, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. With much fanfare, the Obama administration talked about the need to put a woman on American currency. And ultimately, it was decided that um, Andrew Jackson, who was the president of the United States from 1828 to 1836, he's on the $20 bill. He would be bumped from the $20 bills. And Harriet Tubman, who was a black abolitionist, would be put on. The Treasury Department appears to have put up the brakes on that. The Treasury Secretary correctly saying that, um, well, you know, we're not sure we're going to go ahead with this. We've got lots more pressing problems. And on top of that, President Trump is a huge fan of Andrew Jackson. Even though Andrew Jackson was the founder of the modern Democratic Party, um, you know, the idea is he was also a populist and interestingly, from what I'm able to read of history, had a lot of some of the similar traits that Donald Trump had, namely a volatile temper, quick to anger. But in any event, uh, Trump is a huge fan of Andrew Jackson, and now the announcements are that it's very much up in the air whether they're going to make the change. I don't have a problem with this. Let's talk to Dave in Niles, Illinois. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Great show as usual. You, we sir. never hear what the cost is going to be. They never considered under the previous administration what is this going to cost us. These monies are better spent on Texas and Louisiana rebuilding those states. Let's cut out the nonsense and let's let the uh, marijuana smoke clear. <laughs> but 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 Dave, I mean Dave, don't you don't you rec- do you hate women? I mean, for goodness sakes, don't we need to recognize women on our currency? It's all old white men. Oh, absolutely love women, but this is just a total waste of taxpayers' money. Donald Trump is a fiduciary dealing with other people's money. He knows how to do it. He takes that responsibility seriously. Let's find out what what it's going to cost us. I think it's going to amaze us. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Well, again, that's the whole thing. It's... 
Again, I, I, there, there's stuff that you do because it makes a difference, and then there's stuff you do for the symbolism of it. Now, if this decision is final, you know that there's going to be a whole series of articles. It's already starting. New York Times has this piece about it, but it's already starting. Oh, this is going to be the latest example of President Trump who hates African Americans because he's not honoring Harriet Tubman, or he hates women because you know this is he's not putting her on the currency. It might just be that you know this is a change that he just doesn't see the point in making. And also, I think he's a fan of Andrew Jackson. Matt in Mequon. Matt, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I'm going to say just keep Andrew Jackson on a $20 bill. Uh, don't change a thing in that. That's not necessary. Um, I don't I don't know much about that, Harriet Tubman. But uh, i tell you what, Andrew Jackson was a very important person in our nation's history. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's, it's about... Uh, but he was a slave right. owner, Matt. He was a slave owner, don't you realize? Right, exactly. Uh, well, um, well, I tell you what, the uh, the founding fathers, you know, we got George Washington, yep. the dollar bill, Abe Lincoln on the $5 bill. So uh, just keep it as is. There's no... I wouldn't change a thing on that. I mean, they're all very important people in our nation's history. Right, well, and, right. Uh, Thanks for no, seeing that. You're right. I mean, George Washington was a slave owner, too. I mean, and again, it, it's just... This is nothing against Harriet Tubman, but at the same time, I think changing U.S. currency is sort of a big decision, and um, the, if it's done in the name of political correctness, which this one clearly was, you know, it, again, like I say, you know, if you're talking about the top, you know, 1,000 problems that, you know, we're faced in this country, problem number 1,043 is probably whose face is on the $20 bill, and let's solve a lot of the other problems, you know, and then... Then we can worry about that. Hey, I want to switch gears before the the program ends because there's a couple things I, I wanted to mention. The it appears, and again, time will tell as to how we have handled and how we handle you know natural disasters. A lot of the early reports suggest that we learned a lot from the way we mishandled Hurricane Katrina. And it seems like, and again, it's early, time will tell, but it seems like FEMA learned a lot over the years. And and you don't hear, at least so far, the criticisms from Houston that you heard, you know, out of New Orleans and stuff when when Hurricane Katrina hit. And and I think we've learned a lot. And again, now, that's important because if you haven't been following the story, and again, I, I know a lot of people, if you're like me, over the Labor Day weekend, you kind of disconnect, and it's like, okay, I don't want to pay attention to news. I just want to – I don't want to focus on things. Well, the, the big story this week is is going to be this Hurricane Irma that is bearing down on on Florida. And, and they don't know – again, there's three possible storm tracks, but this is a monster storm. This is, this is a Hurricane Harvey type of storm. If it hits as a Category 4 or Category 5 hurricane – this will be the first time in decades that the United States I, – I had the number written down. I've now lost the slip of paper. But this will be the first time in decades that two Category 4 or 5 hurricanes made landfall during the, first, during the same season in, in the United States. And they, they don't know quite what the storm track is. 
part one one storm track you know has it hitting just at the southern coast of florida you know hitting key west hitting miami another one has it going north and going up the east coast a third one has it going around and hitting in the gulf coast but regardless uh and they, they won't know for a couple of days as to what's going to happen but this is going to be potentially a catastrophic event as well and people are going to be following it but getting back to my point about how we, we've at least learned some things from from katrina and, and this is in the grand scope of things well, well, maybe it might seem like a small thing to you, but one of the things that happened during Katrina is is FEMA essentially didn't realize the importance that, that pets have to their owners, and there was really very little planning as to what, what's to be done you know, with, with people's pets. Now, I don't know about you, but I love my dog, and, and the truth of the matter is that, I mean, I, I understand – that, you know, animals are different on the food chain and pets are different on the food chains than, than human beings. But at the same time, you know, pets are, are members of the family. And back during Hurricane Katrina, there was very little effort or thought given to, you know, what about the pets that are going to be left behind? How do we reconnect pets? What happens, you know, what what do we do with, you know, pets? And, and they've actually... They've learned a lot from this as far as allowing people to take their pets, um, allowing people to reconnect their pets, and also um, what do you do when you find these stray pets? There's a big story in the Chicago Tribune about how 118 cats and dogs were transported from Texas to um, Lake County in Chicago where they're going to be kept at the Humane Society. I know around here they're making the same arrangements that you've got all these different animals. We're we're recognizing that, yes, I, I understand there's property damage and obviously you have to be concerned with human life, but we also perhaps need to be concerned with, you know, our, our pets as well. And I'm glad to see emergency management taking steps in that regard. That's one of the many things that I think we've learned from the problems with um, Hurricane Katrina. Hopefully... We won't need emergency management to go into effect um, with this Hurricane Irma, which is, again, kind of scary. That's going to be the story for the rest of the week.